It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 122, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Danny Persich raises vegetables at Full Plate Farm in Ridgefield, Washington for a 90-member winter-only CSA. With three acres of mostly outdoors production, Danny has decided to focus on an underserved niche in the marketplace, enabling him to make a living on a small acreage. We get muddy discussing the challenges of winter production in a climate where it rains literally all winter. Danny gives us the lowdown on how they manage deer predation and vole populations, as well as how he dresses to stay warm and dry no matter the weather. Danny also provides insights into how he has minimized capital and labor inputs on his farm and how that influences his farming schedule as well as his cropping and production strategies. I really got a lot out of this, and, and I don't think it's just because I'm from the Pacific Northwest. It was a lot of fun to talk to Danny and kind of hear he's got a he's got an interesting approach to this whole farming thing, and it was it was uh it was enlightening. I hope you enjoy this show as much as I did producing it. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by Farmers Web, software for your farm. Farmers Web makes it easier to work with your buyers, saving time, reducing errors, and increasing your capacity to work with more buyers overall. FarmersWeb.com and by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service, I wouldn't use anything else. BCSamerica.com. And the Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop-growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high-quality compost and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. These guys are the best. VermontCompost.com. Danny Persich, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Well, thanks, Chris. I'm happy to be here. So glad you could make this work on an almost June day. Yeah, almost. You know, we finally have some nice weather here in the in the northwest for the last few weeks. It's been quite a wet spring, so we've been racing around trying to get things in the ground. Danny, tell me about that and, and, and about well, and about your farm there, Full Plate Farm in Ridgefield, Washington. Where's Ridgefield? How many acres are you farming? And how are you guys selling your produce? Ridgefield is about roughly about fifteen, twenty miles just out just north of Portland, Oregon. And we ha- we're on a ten acre piece of property. Five acres of forest and five acres are fields. Uh, about three of those acres are what we're growing vegetables on. Um, we have a 90-member CSA, and we just do a winter-only CSA. And if we have extra produce, sometimes we'll sell a little bit wholesale or to some restaurants, but mostly everything we grow is just strictly for our CSA. Um, it's just me, and I'll hire an employee a couple days a week kind of in the midst of the summer and a couple of days in the winter to help with some harvest. Yeah, that's the gist of it. So, Danny, I'm just going to ask right off the bat, with, with three acres of produce and a 90-member CSA, are you making a living doing this? We are, yes. I'm not working quite full-time. I'm helping take care of the kids a day a week and also going on family vacations and things like that. Um, but, yes, I'm making a living doing it. It's great. It's just uh, just me. My wife wouldn't choose to farm, I don't think. She's an artist and an educator, so she's happy doing what she's doing, and I'm happy doing what I'm doing, and we're, we're making it work. And is your primary market in Portland, Oregon, or, or do you are you selling on the north side of the river as well? We are. Yeah, we are selling on both sides. So we are selling here in Ridgefield. People come to the farm to pick up uh, produce here, and then we... 
have a pickup site in Vancouver and five pickup sites around the Portland area. So everything's within you know, 30 miles is probably the furthest that we, we go, and that's even my, my mom watches our kids a couple days a week, and she takes produce back to her house for people to pick up over on the west side of Portland. And you said that you're doing a winter-only CSA program. Yes, yes, winter only. So, you know, we, uh, our season, our harvest season, our delivery season, pickup season is from, goes from the, usually the, right around the 1st of November to about the last day of March. So it spans, we have 11 pickups over that time. It's an every other week harvest and pickup schedule for our members and ourselves. So it's one week on of harvesting and then a week off to do odds and ends. And you said that you're planting now. We are, yes. So we don't have the mad rush to get in in the spring, and that's part of part of the reason why we uh, chose the winter model is because our fields here on our property are pretty wet in the spring. We have a pretty, you know, we have pretty great soil. You know, about twelve to eighteen inches down, about eighteen, sometimes two feet in some areas, and then it's pretty much like a a lot of clay. So our water level can get really high, especially in some, um, you know, in the spring and fall. In the winter, but in the spring, it's really hard to get in. So, we were planning on doing a winter CSA or a summer CSA, excuse me, um, and then just couldn't really get in. I was like, well, we'll do we'll do winter again. Um, so we're yes, yeah, so we're planting right now. We we have our winter squash in. Just finished getting our leeks in. Got our onions in the other week. It's kind of a later later side of things this year because it's just been such a wet spring. Um, but yeah, then kind of in the next few months, I'd say probably about 85% of our fields or 90 are all planted by the end of July. And then there's, you know, kinds of odds and ends of some uh, fall and winter greens, kind of quick-growing greens. They'll kind of just hold over the winter that we're planting. Our last planting is probably in September for, like, first week of September for those. And a few things, some turnips and rutabagas and things in August. But most, you know, the majority of all the brassicas are planted right around mid-July, our carrots around mid-July, and then in kind of mid, mid-late June are parsnips and parsley roots and other things like that. So now I'm familiar with the climate out there because I grew up in Seattle and actually lived for a couple of years in Astoria, Oregon, which would be off to the west of you there. But, yes. but for the rest of our listeners, tell me about the climate in southwest Washington State. Well, it's, um, you know, we have basically from, you could say from, Right after Fourth of July till probably mid September, there's no rain at all. It's really rare to get some rain. Um, so we have a drought kind of for those months, and then from the rest of the time, it's you know rainy on and off. Um, but then especially from like November, kind of into March, it's just kind of you know like slow drizzly rain, not huge downpours, but just kind of you know just kind of wet. Is pretty moist and wet, you know, during during that time. With you know some very nice sunny days and breaks here and there. It also wouldn't really be that fun, you know. You gotta have some sun. The sun has to come out every once in a while. Um, yeah, that's kind of the gist of it. Is that? Yeah. And yeah. how cold does it get there in the winter time? Oh, the cold. So usually, you know, around the into the teens and twenties is kind of the low most of the times. This last year, we were down. Where we were right around 10 degrees for a couple days, a couple nights, um, I guess a couple nights. And then back in 2013, we were about the same. 
And those have been extremes in our area. Usually, you know, they're definitely like records that we've been setting kind of the last five years. We've had a couple winters that have uh, definitely set some records and definitely pushed us to kind of hone our techniques. Back in 2013, I was talking about we had, you know, it was down for about a week or so. We were really down in that, you know, the tens, you know, people in the valley were down to zero and... um, we definitely learned a lot that year. That year was a learning year of what we were growing and varieties were growing that were working and some that weren't. Um, so this last year, I felt like we actually handled everything really well, even though we had some really extreme winter weather. Now, when it gets down into the tens at night, what's happening the following day? Is it getting back up above freezing or does it stay cold for days or weeks at a time? Uh, usually not, but in it's rare to get back above freezing if it's down that cold. So we're really looking at the weather. You know, we can look at kind of a long-range forecast, and if I see that there's something like that coming our way, then we'll we'll harvest what we need to harvest to make sure that the CSA, the schedule, stays on time. Because I found like I found that going off schedule, um, our harvest schedule and delivery schedule can really mess things up. Because if you go off once and you're trying to make up, but then the weather gets crazy again, it's just kind of a big old you know, just a big old mess trying to mess around. So we've really just tried to stay on our schedule to, of our delivery schedule. So if we see that coming, then like, oh, let's go, you know, let's go dig roots now and get those out and let's go harvest these greens and put them in the walk-in. And, you know, it's really, it worked out this last year. I was <laughs> I was pleasantly surprised that we, uh, we had some mad rushes and I had to, you know, do a little more, harvest things a little earlier than I'd like to harvest them because we really like to harvest things, you know, the, a day or day or two before we deliver them, um, sometimes same day too, in the winter. So it's yes, yeah, so we just kind of uh, we really watch the weather in the winter. I guess is, that's kind of a big thing. We definitely were pulling snow off, you know, pulling snow off the roots and digging roots, you know, digging parsnips and things, trying to find the lines and the rows. So it's always an adventure, you know, when the things the, the plants are covered with snow and you're just trying to search around for them and trying to make sure you're digging in straight lines and not diving into the middle of the bed, staying on the outside of the bed. and It gets a little messy, you could say that, when the, when the weather gets a little uh, unpredictable. So it's really interesting to me that you're talking about digging roots for your CSA, which runs from November through March. Now, you know, here in the upper Midwest, where I have most of my farming experience, we, of course, would harvest those roots and put them into a root cellar or, or a walk-in cooler over the winter. Um, it doesn't sound like you're doing that. No, we're not doing that. Um, there's such amazing flavor that you can get in the winter with the roots when you're pulling them out of the ground and letting them freeze and thaw, and you know the starches kind of turn to sugar, and you really get this sweetness that you don't get the same way that I found when you do put them in the walk-in and store them. Um, so our carrots, you know, I've had people tell me that I've ruined them for about carrots for the rest of their lives so they can't, you know, they won't look at carrots the same way again. Um, I mean, you just get this incredible flavor, you know. It's like, you know, parsnips, same thing, carrots, the beets. So when you're harvesting these roots, like, throughout the winter, you're, um, you, know, you get a whole other, like, complexity of flavors, and people really appreciate that. But with that said, we've also, you know, over the last couple winters, we definitely had some, with carrots specifically, had bigger losses in, like, January and February 
of those. So uh, right now, I think we're going to, this year, we're planning on probably putting up about a third to half of our carrots into our walk-in and storing those for like the second half of our season and then digging stuff fresh probably up to about January or so. Because I figure, you know, it's better. Do people want to have have carrots that don't taste as good or have, not have any carrots at all, you know, in March? I figured par- carrots, people still want to have carrots. When you're talking about putting up enough carrots for a 90-member CSA or, or putting up half of the carrots for a 90-member CSA, yeah. how many carrots are we talking? Oh, let's see. So in our full share, we try to give around two and a half to three pounds every two weeks. So that's about three, what, 300 pounds, so about 1,500 pounds of carrots, I guess, would be about half. Okay. To do that so, math, yeah. A, a not insignificant amount of carrots. No, definitely not yeah. insignificant. A fair, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, we'd, we're definitely going to have to get another, um, a cooler probably to accommodate doing that. So that's kind of right where we're at. And we've, we've uh, for our cooler, we have a, uh, the back of a reefer truck, refrigerated truck. You can just buy the box of those already insulated, and um, you can find them on Craigslist. And we found that's what we have right now. And the great thing about that that I really like is that it's already waterproof, weather tight. You know, you don't have to build. It doesn't have to go inside a certain area. You can have it out. It's, right now, it's just under our trees of our forest, kind of back in there. Um, and this module, you know, you can move it around pretty easily too. So it's rather than the panels, you have know, to put all the panels together, and you can add insulation. We'll probably get another one of those just for some root storage. And are you running the refrigeration unit that came on that box, or or have you installed a regular refrigeration unit inside of the inside uh, of the box? We installed a cool bot on the one that we have right now. Um, that's just a, I think it's a eight by twelve unit, and you know you can get them in all different sizes. So uh, the cool bot works great, and I mean also you know with using the cool bot in the winter time. We're not having to, you know, we're not swinging the temperature from 90 outside down to, you know, 36 or 40 or, you know what I mean? There's not as much as, uh, we don't have to drop the temperature as much. So I feel like, and I haven't done the math or, you know, the specs on this, but that we could use, we could get a larger box and still cool it without running running into issues of the uh, size of a, with the cool box. That makes sense. That totally makes sense. Because when you're harvesting roots at the end of October or bringing in greens in in February to store in there, yeah, those things are going to be you know thirty degrees, forty degrees, as far as core temperature, not sixty or seventy degrees in a core temperature that you're trying to pull out of it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know the temperature. You know most of the time the temperature is probably at night is in the thirties and in the day is probably in the high 40s, low 50s sometimes, but it's kind of between, you know, mid-30s and mid-40s is kind of the average temperature of the, of the northwest of this time. So we're only, yeah, so we're only really dropping things, yeah, you know, 10 degrees, 15 degrees sometimes, so it's not, you know, not as big of a swing there. What other infrastructure do you have for winter farming? You mentioned the, the walk-in cooler, the truck box, and, and plans to get another one. Do you have a packing shed that, in addition? Yes, we have a packing shed. Um, it's a, what is it? It's a 20 by 24 foot carport with some wash tables, some packing benches in the middle. We have a root washer there and then just some other shelving. And we have a tractor shed next to that. That's a larger shed for the, our, uh, 
73 International and our 49 Alf Chalmers G. And then just other tools also. My So my my wife's parents live on the same property. They live back in the forested part of the property. And they have, I'm able to store winter squash up in their garage. And then also Russ, who's my father-in-law, he, he owns and runs a transmission shop. So he has a lot of tools that I'm able to use or borrow or ask for help if I need some help with some fabrication or any, you know, anything. If I break something and I can't fix it, he can just about fix anything. So it's pretty, pretty amazing to have his help, and he loves helping too. That's an awesome resource to have. It's an amazing resource. No, I can, you know, if I blow up an engine, he can help me rebuild it. So it's, you know, it's pretty great. And with him being a small business owner, he's always uh, encouraged me to, you know, to kind of build slowly and don't go in debt too much and, you know, just kind of use the resources available and what's what's around. And that's kind of what we've been trying to do here, you know. So tell me about that. You've been farming since, I think, 2010 on, on Michelle's family land. Yeah. And are you still growing your farm or have you kind of, are you kind of where you intend to settle out? Um, I would like to grow it some more, but our props, but we'd need to expand and rent some more land nearby. So we're pretty much, we're pretty much, you know, at capacity of where we want to be with the, the land here. Um, and I've always said when all the kids are in, when all the kids are in school, then we'll probably you know, may take another step in another direction, or, or at least assess it at that point. We have a, a five-and-a-half-year-old and two-and-a-half-year-old two two twins right now. So things are pretty just busy around the, around the house. So once, you know, once everybody's in school and there's a little more time on the ends of days and the sides of the days, we'll, uh, you know, we'll think about, right, I'd, I'd like to think about renting some more land because there's definitely, you know, there's a market for winter vegetables. It seems like, you know, there's more and more people doing it in the area. There's lots of, there's a few good winter markets in the Portland area and there's a handful of people that are, that have winter TSAs, but there's still a growing need for local food during the winter. So you haven't had any trouble selling what you're producing? No, there's always like a little push just at the end sometimes, you know, like the last like couple of weeks. They're like, oh, we still have a few, you know, CSA spots and we'll send out a little email blast to just tell a couple of friends and they'll post stuff on, on their Facebooks and things. And, um, yeah, and then we, so, but, but not really, I guess to answer your question, no. Last week we were talking to the Cunninghams. Uh, they're down in Humboldt County and, and they farm with oxen. And I, I asked them, you know, why take something like market farming and make it harder? I mean, it's hard enough already. <laughs> so why, why, why crazy winter farming? Well, you know, that's a good question. I, I love the hardiness of winter vegetables, but um, there's, some, there's some benefits of it too. Um, you, know, there are, you know, the toughest thing is definitely like, you know, the quality and um, potential loss of vegetables is definitely like, there dealing with that side of things, but we can also charge more, um, which is you know kind of makes up for a lot of that. But also one, I mean, one great thing is we have less weed pressure.
factor in general when we're planting? Because if we're plant, you know, we don't have the slow spring kind of slog of, you know, the slow growing weeds, the chickweed getting and everything and all that. You know, we just have more of the annual kind of quick growing weeds that we can take care of. We know when we're planting stuff in mid-July, you know, there's just not the, not the same weed pressure. So that really, that's a nice benefit. But one of the biggest reasons we've chosen to do the farm in the wintertime is it really has evened out the schedule for us. So in the summer, you know, we're planting, watering, and weeding. In the winter, we're harvesting, washing, packing, and delivering. So instead of doing all that just in the in the summer, we can divide that over the whole year. And it's really it's been really important to me to have uh, you know because I've worked on different you know different CSAs and done lots of regular season farm work and it's crazy in the summer and it's great and I love it and I thrive on that and I love long days. But once we had a family. I've really come to appreciate having having time for them, and you know, start I start work at eight and I end around four, and then we take vacations and go on school trip, you know, go on kind of follow the school schedule, do like stuff during spring break and winter break, and take off during the summer. So there's a lot of flexibility as long as they have somebody to help be around to just make sure the irrigation's going um, when I'm gone, then I can take off in the summer, and it's amazing. It's like, it's so great. It's so great to be able to play with the kids and be with the kids and, you know, just kind of have some sanity during the summer and being able to, you know, because when you're in the midst of, you know, regular season farm, it's, you know, you're working long, hard days and you're, you know, you're bone tired at the end of the day most of the time or pretty pretty close to in the middle of the summer. And there's lots of more logistics to uh, try to work out with, you know, harvesting, packing, delivering and all that and marketing and so we kind of just, it distributes everything um, over the whole year. It's kind of a, instead of having so much downtime in the winter, you, just, you know, we're still, we have plenty of work to do in the winter. So it really, uh, I really like that about it a lot. So when you started in, in 2010, was the winter CSA your business plan or was this something that, that developed more organically? Uh, it developed a little more organically. Um, I, so when Josh Folk started Slow Hand Farm, that first year, I was I was talking to him, and I was back east, and I was coming back, and I ended up working with him that year on that. And we'd always talk, and he's, he'd always talk about, it'd be cool to do just grow just for the winter, and kind of always stuck in my head. And and so the first year we moved out here, we we moved out and bought a mobile home and put it on the land out here, sell his family's land, and but we wanted to remodel it, so I knew I'd be doing that that summer, and I was also managing a farm in Portland at the time, too, so there wasn't time to necessarily grow and market and sell in the summer. And I was like, well, I can grow, you know, grow the food in the, in the summertime and sell it in the winter. And, um, I was really inspired by all the chicories we were growing at Sohan Farm. And, um, so we did that that winter, and it worked, and it was good, and we, you know, we just started with 12 members, you know, kind of doubled every doubled every year for the first four years and kind of settled here around 90 members um, but then the next spring I was planning on growing or doing a regular season CSA and it was just so wet I just really couldn't get in early enough like I wanted to and I was like you know well, why don't we just do this again um, and I was still at that time I was still managing a farm in Portland this first couple of years of the farm I was I had uh, 
was doing that while we were settling in up here and getting things going. Um, and, yeah, then, then the next year, uh started just being here full-time, or fullish time, you could say. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and then we just haven't really looked back. You know, there's a there's a market. People love it. You know, I've really just forced chicories down everybody's throats, you know, and tell them that's what they get to eat a lot of the time. Everybody, you know, that's one of the learning curves of, you know, the winter CSA. But, um, yeah, it's been... It's been good. So you talk about having to force people into chicories. That happens to be <laughs> just about my favorite vegetable. Uh, and and really hard to get here in the upper Midwest in the wintertime uh, to get yeah. anything other than just radicchio and and, uh, and the occasional escarole. So yeah. are most of your customers coming to you from other CSAs or are they, are they doing your CSA in the wintertime and then something else for their food supply from April through October? You know, it's a good question. Um, it's kind of a mix. I definitely find that I am able to kind of hit the market kind of in between things. So there's some people who love going to the farmer's market and love during the summertime and walking around and doing that in the summer like as an activity. So those people don't have like a CSA in the summer, so they're like, oh, but they still want to eat locally but maybe not want to go to the farmer's market in the winter. Um, there's some people that love having home gardens and you're growing most or a lot of their own food in the summer as well, and so aren't interested in the CSA. Or some people that travel in the summer and don't can't be arranged around to actually um, get you know get a regular season CSA. And then there are some people also that will do a CSA and then um, come over our way and sometimes have a little overlap where they're up to their ears and just about everything in the fall. But um, so it's really it's, it's it's been worked out really good. It's definitely in a way that I've marketed the RCSA when I tell people about it is that, you know, there's a little more flexibility with the winter CSA. You know, the crops, the vegetables store longer in people's refrigerators. They don't have to pick up vegetables every week, so it's every other week. So, you know, they're not, for their convenience sake, I guess, it's, they're not having to go every week necessarily to pick up veggies. Um, so, yeah, so we kind of, can get lots of different people. There's lots of different people that are interested in it. In terms of volume, how big is your typical share? Oh, it's probably like a full-size share is probably, we use, when we pack shares and deliver those, we do them in 14-gallon Rubbermaid tubs. And that's usually around like 18 to 28 pounds, kind of depending on the share. You know? So there's some variability, but depending on what squash might be in the box or if it's a root-heavy share or... We like to have about around 10 to 13 different uh, vegetables in each share. And then the, the half-size share is just pretty much half, basically, almost exactly. Um, with an occasional, maybe not a half a head of cabbage, maybe a smaller. We'll be, we're able to use the small heads of cabbage, you know, to put in the half-size shares. So we, it's been a nice way to use some of the smaller produce, too, to put in the for the, our half-size shares. Now, with something like the winter crops, it's such a different mix of product, I think, than what most people are probably eating all summer long or all winter long if they're not part of a CSA. I mean, you're, you know, you're giving folks things like, you know, salsify and rutabagas and, and celery root and root parsley, um, in addition to those, you know, the endives and the escaroles. And in most CSAs, there's already a challenge in 
getting people to eat their produce, right? I mean, to, to actually use oh. everything that's in the box. Has, yeah. Have you found that that's more so with your winter CSA or do the people that sign up come in expecting a little bit more adventure? Um, I think some people don't know what to expect necessarily, and some people are, it's kind of a mix, I guess. Um, but it definitely is, you know, it's been honed over the last few years. I feel like we've gotten better at the, or learned what people really don't like, like turnips. I mean, some people really love them, but most people only want them, you know, maybe a couple times during the winter. They want, don't want to have turnips, don't want to eat turnips at, with every share. So it's definitely been, you know, things like that. Um, and say, like, you know, parsley root, some people really like and find it novel, maybe in its own way. Um, and so we plan on giving that out, like, once, maybe twice. And same with salsify. So there's some things that we plan on just giving out one time during the season and rather than overwhelming people. So I feel like we've definitely, over the last few years, kind of, you know, we'll do a survey at the end of the year and kind of, you know, some, not everybody obviously responds to the survey, but the people that do, we get a little feedback, and just from talking to people, too, um, finding out what they like and what they don't like. And a lot of our members are friends or, you know, friends of friends, and so we get some good feedback that way of what people have trouble with, you know, what people want to eat. But it is, you know, there's a whole other side of cooking for, you know, winter crops. Um, and chicories is probably one of our more difficult ones, but once people figure it out, and there's people that, never really liked it and you know it's in me that they get too many of it but too much of it but then they hit a point and they're like oh i've learned how to use this and that always makes my day when people like get start getting excited about chicories because it's such a wonderful wonderful plant to eat and grow so what do people figure out to do with chicories i mean i know i know all of the things that i like to do with them but that doesn't necessarily oh. match up with the rest of the population you know, I think a lot of people like to pair, you know, there's the, um, one thing some people do is well, they'll cut a little bit of bitterness out of it by soaking the chicories in ice water for about 15 minutes uh, and then drying them off and then um, eating them that way. Um, but a lot of people have found that they like to pair a sweeter maybe dressing or like some, you know, you could say like pomegranates or like oranges or some sweeter fruit type dressing kind of mixed in there with the bitterness and just trying to, to uh, contrast that. Uh, there's some people who've really found that they love chopping it up and throwing it in like their scrambled eggs. Um, or, you know, sugar loaves are one of our favorite um, chicories to grow. And, you know, they have this amazing, you know, they're one of the more sweeter chicories, but I, people really like ha cutting those in half long ways, drizzling some olive oil sprinkling some salt and roasting those in the oven at like, you know, 400 degrees or 450 for about 15 minutes. And then you get like the crispy leaves, a little tender sweetness inside. And it's kind of, you know, lots of different textures and flavors happening at the same time. And those are kind of the, I guess, by the three more popular ways that people have found that people really have learned to enjoy the eating the chicory. Since you're harvesting your crops from outdoors during the winter, are you growing anything actually undercover in a hoop house? When we started out, I didn't want to put everything, have to rely on row cover or tons of plastic um, to cover everything and grow everything. I wanted to, you know, select different varieties that grow here, grow well here in the Northwest that can handle the weather and not to have to necessarily rely on, 
everything being in a hoop house. So we have, so that's kind of the way that we've worked. But we have two, we have one, our greenhouse, the surface of our greenhouse in the summer, and in the fall we'll take out most of our benches and our uh, ground cloth and then open that up and plant in there. And then we have a 70 by 30 high tunnel that we'll plant into also. Um, and we'll, we usually plant spinach and cilantro, Let's put some parsley in there, and then lots of different, you know, brassica greens. Um, and that high tunnel in the summer, we've grown sweet potatoes uh, in the summer as a crop that we'll hand out in the winter. But we've been, you know, we're pretty lucky here in the Northwest, and I guess in our country, you know, there's a lot of some really great seed companies here that grow a lot of um, seeds that and plants that really work well in the wintertime, you know, with wild garden seed just down in the valley and adaptive seeds and uprising seeds and disky seeds. And so they're all kind of here in the northwest, and they, you know, they've all selected things kind of specifically for this area. I mean, obviously you can grow them anywhere, but um, there's some really interesting variety of, of greens and, um, and herbs to buy from them to grow, grow out here in the northwest. And those four companies that you mentioned, are those the places that you're getting most of your seeds from, or are you getting normal stuff from other companies as well? Um, if I can get anything from those guys, whatever they have, those are kind of the places that I look to first and then kind of fill in the gaps from the from every, everybody else, like, you know, from Johnny's and Osborne and Territorial. and um, those, those seed companies kind of fill in the gaps for me. There's a specialized seed or hybrid that I'm looking for that... Um, outperforms or does, you know, meet, meets my needs in, in other ways. But um, I'd say those kind of four companies are kind of the majority of where I, where I like to get most of my seeds. With something as specialized as winter growing, and especially winter growing outside in the Pacific Northwest, how do you decide what varieties you're going to grow? Well, I guess a lot of it's been trial and error. You know, of course, you look in the seed, you know, seed catalogs and kind of see what what they might have to say about it, and then you ask other farmers what they've been growing and some experience of what, you know, we've I've grown in the past. And and then just over the last, you know, it was like the first few, probably three or four years, we really did a lot of trials and, you know, a lot of things failed. And we grew a little bit more than we needed, especially those first few years, just making sure that we could deliver enough uh, produce to everybody. Um I feel in the last few years really honed it. So a lot of it's just been experience of uh, different varieties that have done well. And, you know, we used to cover a lot of stuff, a lot of our greens, um, you know, like our Totsoys and Akina um, Savoys and Sorrel and other things like that. Um, we used to cover a lot of that with a uh, row cover, like one-ounce row cover. But then I found we were actually getting a lot of, uh, and a lot of, even a lot of our radishes and, turnips and things too, but we were getting a lot of the disease pressure underneath some of that sometimes because there was, wasn't enough airflow and things were just wet. And um, so, by accident, we, or by neglect, I guess I should say, <laughs> some stuff, you know, some of the row cover blew off and uh, never covered it back up the rest of the season. It's probably just, I don't know if it was one, after one of the kids was born or what, or I just never really got around to it. And, you know, we saw, like, you know, we're like, oh, well, this stuff did great. You know, it got down to, you know, 15 degrees, you know, and here's here's this top toy still looking great. 
like, why cover it? Why do an extra step and why cover it if we don't need to? So we've really gone to a lot of those greens, kind of those grazing greens that we harvest a lot kind of in um, February and March just to leave those completely uncovered. You know, we'll plant those usually around the first week of September or so. And they just kind of, you know, they grow up to about size and just kind of hang out. And, you know, between February or, I guess, January and, and March, we're harvesting those. And, and that was really like a huge revelation was to go, you know, because when we started covering everything, we started covering our chicories with row cover. We covered a lot of things early on. And that was me just wanting to make sure that, well, you, you know, obviously you don't want to lose all this all this uh, hard work and these great, you know, beautiful vegetables. You don't want to lose them due to the weather. But, um just with experience and talking to other people have really let go of trying to trying to cover things all the time. You know, some things, if we have a big, you know, obviously if we have a huge freeze coming, I'll, I'll run out and I have stuff on hand to cover stuff if we really need to. But, you know, usually things, they, we might, they might get hit, but then they'll bounce back in February and March. And, you know, so we, we usually, nothing ever really truly dies. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. Maybe well, not on your farm, true. you know. <laughs> well, like those chicories, you know, when, you know the chicories, if they, if they get hit really hard, they'll just look really slimy. But, you know, it's one of those amazing things about chicories is that they can get hit and kind of get slimed on the outside, but you peel off a few layers and you have this beautiful, you know, you have a beautiful radicchio. Or, you know, it's like this, uh, kind of like a treasure hunt. So, you know, there's definitely more labor in, on that side of things, too, because of that, but you also still are able to freshly harvest chicories and have some amazing flavors, you know, to share with everybody. So it's kind of special in that way. And I suppose with something like the chicories, you know, you talk about it, it being a little bit more labor when you leave them uncovered, but I suppose if you cover them and you get some foliar disease, you've got the same issues of it's leaves to pull off either way. Yeah, you know, yes, exactly. I just think if you can make do without having to cover everything and uncover it and watch the wind blow it or the deer step through it or, you know, all those things, That's there's a lot just there. So I've, the last couple of years leaving them uncovered have, wor- have worked out uh, worked out fine. Okay, so you said deer, and I'm, I'm curious about that because, again, in my experience, when when we had even the garlic coming up in the spring, you know, when it's that first green thing that's available... The deer were, were just on it like hippies on hummus, you know? <laughs> and how are you dealing with that on your farm? Ooh, well, you know, the last few years, we'll have like a couple deer that just kind of walk through. We don't have a ton of pressure. You know, we're right on the edge of uh, Ridgefield, which is a very fast-growing community. Um, you know, it used to just be like a 1,000 thousand folks, and now it's, I don't know, it's probably like six or seven. It's just, it keeps it keeps growing at a very rapid rate. They're putting in a lot of houses right now, um, about a half mile away from us. So the deer are definitely being pushed out in a way of their, where they used to be. So that this last year was the most deer pressure that we've had in the last seven years I've been here. Um, and so this year we're going to have to address that a little bit. In the past, what we've done is cover a lot of things with bird netting. Our first first year here, I was going to build build a fence on the cheap um, to try to keep the deer out out of um, bird netting that I got from a blueberry grower out here, a big like 17 foot roll roll by I don't know 5,000 feet, and never got around to putting it up, so I just draped it on top of 
some of the crops, and it worked fine. So we've been doing that for the last, I don't know, five or six years, and um, so that's worked really well. So we drape that bird netting on our carrots and our chicories. So we'll put that on there, and that keeps the deer, you know, they don't like it entangled in there. They can't eat it, so they're not interested, and they just kind of walk away. And we used to drape a little bit of that on the edges of our brassicas um, to keep them out, but it seemed fine. But this last year, they exited the deer. And it was a really harsh winter, too, so they were pretty happy to have something to eat. So we had, we definitely had some losses this uh, this year, more from deer than we have in, in past years. So that's something that I need to think about and figure out what we're going to do this, this coming season, you know, if it's more of a... You know, if it's getting a dog, if it's getting the, you know, the sprinklers that spray deer when they walk by, if it's the coyote pee or wolf pee or whatever kind of everywhere, or I don't know, what worked for you guys or didn't. You know, the thing that worked the best for us was this 3D electric fence from uh-huh. uh, from Premier Fence Supply. I, I don't know if they still sell it, but the the idea was that you had two strands on the inside, so towards the vegetables, and one was at about... 32 inches and the other one was at about 48 inches, I think. And then, um, and then you had another strand and that was maybe two feet on the outside. And that was placed about halfway between those two. And then we, and and then that was electrified and we baited the fence and that was the real key. And then we actually took that fence down in the wintertime because it was too difficult. Well, in the Midwest uh, where the ground freezes or when you get snow cover, it really messes with the um, the um, the conductivity of the ground, and so you uh-huh. you couldn't close the loop on the electric fence in the winter time. Huh. So we found that it was better to take it down and not have the deer be trained. You leave the posts up, but you just take the take those three wires down, and uh-huh. and then the deer don't get trained to the idea that 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 fence isn't hot. When it goes yeah. up, it's hot, uh, yeah. and then and then like I say, we baited it uh, with. Uh, Premier sells these great little uh, these great little bottle caps. They're, I mean, it's kind of it seems like a crazy thing to buy, but if you try to put them together, I'm sure it would take quite a bit of time. But they're okay. it's a bottle cap with a a piece of wire through it, and then a cotton ball stuffed in it, and okay. you you wrap that onto the fence, and you know, nice little aluminum bottle cap. So again, very conductive, and then you put apple scent on the the cotton balls, and mm-hmm. that encourages the deer to come up with their nice wet little noses and make really good contact with the fence because they stop. They stop because of the 3D aspect. They look at it. They don't have good depth perception. And they go, oh, what's going on here? We're confused. And then they smell the apple scent. And then they go, they get to the apples and then wham. (laughs) So, which when they've eaten enough of your radicchio is a pretty satisfying thing to have happen. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Oh, you got to, you got to keep them out. Yeah. I feel like I've seen some of those 3D fences around and, I think that was one thing we always thought about, but you know what we had was working, but I feel like we definitely need to address that this year, make a better plan like that. So when you're draping that bird netting over the crops, because that's a really interesting approach to me, are you just putting it directly on the crop or do you, is it going on hoops over the crop or? No, it's just getting draped on the crop. Okay. Um, it just kind of sits there and you know, with the, you know, we're not harvesting all the beds at once, so it's just, you know, it's little, it's easier than uncovering than the, than the row cover, especially, you know, in wet row cover in the winter. Um, it allows airflow and also, 
pretty lightweight. So um, there can be some damage, though, to some of the um, some of the crops. I mean, the carrot tops don't really matter because they're going to kind of freeze or get knocked down, knocked back, and just regular freezes no matter what. But the, um, there can be some damage on the top of the leaves, some of the chicories on with that if with a really hard freeze. Uh, right. We could probably put some hoops up and do that. I haven't done that, so. So with that, Danny, we're going to stop here, take a break, get a word from a couple of sponsors, and then we'll be right back with Danny Persich from Full Plate Farm in Ridgefield, Washington. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is supported by Farmer's Web, software for your farm. Farmer's Web makes it easy to work with your buyers, saving you time, increasing efficiency, reducing mistakes, and streamlining order management from start to finish. What's not to like? No more lost order slips. No more lost invoices. Know which of your buyers have already paid, which have not. Keep records and download your financial data. Farmers Web helps you manage orders from buyers who place them online, but also those that order by phone, text, or email. Save time, reduce errors, and keep all your orders in one place. Automatically generate harvest and packing lists, generate product catalogs, generate packing slips. Farmers Web helps inform your buyers of delivery routes, pickup locations, lead times, and order minimums, while also helping you to keep track of buyer payment terms, special pricing, and customer information for all of your buyers. A flat monthly fee and flexible plan types allow you to pause, cancel, or switch plan types from month to month at any time, even during the off-season. FarmersWeb.com The podcast is also brought to you by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are often mistaken for just a rototiller, but they're truly a superior piece of farming equipment, engineered and built in Italy, where small farms are a way of life. BCS tractors are built to the standards of quality and durability expected of real agricultural equipment, the kind of dependability that every farm needs. I've had the good fortune to work with BCS tractors for over 25 years, and I wouldn't consider anything else for my small tractor needs. I'm not the only fan. More than 1.5 million people in 50 countries have discovered the advantages of owning Europe's most popular two-wheel tractor. And these really are small tractors with the kinds of features found on their four-wheeled cousins and a wide array of equipment. Power harrows, rotary plows, flail mowers, snow throwers, sickle bar mowers, chippers, log splitters, just about anything you could need for your farm. Check out bcsamerica.com to see photos and videos of BCS in action. And we're back with Danny Persich from Full Plate Farm in Ridgefield, Washington. It's about 30 minutes north of Portland, Oregon. So, Danny, before we went on break, we were talking about uh, avoiding deer predation. Do you guys run into issues with with field mice and other rodents in the wintertime? We do. It's just definitely, uh, voles are kind of our big, uh, or our small predator, I guess you could say. They love, what do they love? They love, they can really like the chicories, the beets, and what else? Some other, the radishes, and not the turnips so much, or rutabagas. Um, but those are definitely one of our our pests. And we have built those those Elliott Coleman style vol boxes that I think are in that winter harvest handbook. There's some pictures of those. Um, it's just a what is it, probably like eight by eight by six inch box with a lid on top, and you put two uh, two mouse traps inside there. The oh, what's the name of the mouse trap? It's the they're the gray ones. We don't have to touch them. And you just they, the squeeze kind of they just open up. Right. Um, so we have two of those in there, and as long as you're on top of checking those often, they work great. Um, I've even found when I haven't gone around to checking them that they end up making a home in there. They make a little nice, uh, nice house for a bull to live in. So that works really well. <laughs> so it's just uh, checking those often 
seem to work. But it's definitely a, a pressure and a huge bummer. Like when we had a, a lot of snow, we got you know about a foot of snow this year that hung around for a week or two. And during that time, I definitely had some voles just tunnel all the way through, you know, a couple rows of beets and really we definitely lost about one of our beet harvests for the, that we were hoping to give out to the CSA. So we were one shy of what we were hoping to do, which was, yeah, which really just sucks. So they're definitely one of our uh, bigger, bigger pests. So I've really, you know, I've always talked about it and I should one of these years. We need to put some more owl boxes and raptor poles and things like that to encourage a little more predation from the skies and also doing the boxes. Now, those boxes, are you baiting the traps inside? No, the voles are just looking for a dark place to, to go. Um, and so they just like just running in there. They're just kind of checking it out and usually just run on in. And Yeah, there's no bait involved. Um, and those traps, I wish, uh, a better mouse trap, that's the name of it. I think they're about a buck or two a piece. Um, you can find them online and um, order, you know, a lot of them. I think they will even give you a break if you order a ton of them. But um, those have worked really well. Um, and you don't have to. You can bait them. One of our, our in-laws, if there's mice around up here, they'll rub salami on them. But <laughs> that's just, that might be for, like, uh, you know, for regular mice, too. But, I mean, I think my understanding it's just, yeah, they just, they're, the voles are just looking for a place, a nice dark place, a nice little quiet place to see what's in or go run into. And they just run in and run right into the trap. So it works pretty well in the field. And the great thing about those, too, is you can put them, you know, they can be under row cover. If you do have row cover, they can be under netting. They can be, you can kind of put those anywhere. And the traps aren't going to, you know, go off because they're inside a box. So they're, uh, they're great. And you just use scrap, you know, scrap, any scrap wood you have laying around and, them together. Any tricks for positioning those particularly well, or do you just kind of set them out in the middle of your field and the bulls wander along and find them? Um, yeah, usually I just look like I've just you know just kind of see which which crops um, the bulls have been attracted to, or which you know which in our case has been um, is in the beets and the chicories and um, what else? Uh, you know, sometimes we'll get into the carrots a little bit. So then I'm just putting them kind of just where I see them. Sometimes if I feel like a little path they've started to make, I'll put them right in the middle of that and put it pretty flush to where they're running. Um, it's always easier to put more on the ends of the rows or the ends of the beds because that's where you're walking by, which is kind of nice. You know, you can put them out there and um, if you see a lot of, you know, it's just kind of where you see them, I guess. But, you know, as you know, it's just easier when you're walking around your field and not having to go into the middle of the beds and, um, it's a lot easier just uh, to look at, to open them up and grab them right there and empty them. So, yeah. On on three acres of winter vegetables, how many of these vole boxes do you have? Ooh, you know, we I think we had about 20, and then we built about another 20 more, so we had about 40, I think. And I'd even put more out. I mean, you can't, I don't think you can really have too many, and they don't take too long to check. Though I'm, I am guilty of not checking them often enough. In an ideal situation, you just, as part of a field walk, like once a day or every other day, you'd spend, you could probably spend like a half hour, you know, checking and emptying them and resetting them. Um, and that would totally be worth it. And I definitely, I feel like I could, that's one thing I could get so much better at is actually, you know, I'll set them and leave them there, but then I'll 
get distracted, do something else, and oh, it's like, oh, I should check those. And of course, there's some decomposing. How often are you checking those? I mean, or, or maybe I should say, how often do you do you feel like you should be checking those? I feel, well, I think you could check them every day or two, or three days. I mean, wow. anything in that, and you're going to find, you know, they they're just they're there, they're out out in the field and running around. So, and they really can get in the spring is when they can get even more active because they're starting to you know look for more food and I think having some babies too and all that. So, yeah, you can definitely, uh, yeah, every couple of days. And when you're walking along checking those bull traps, are you carrying something to put the dead mice in, or are you just tossing them in the field roads? I toss them on the edges of the field, on the borders usually, just back, you know, either like back in the woods or back at the bottom of our field. We have a hill, we're on a south-facing slope, so down by an oak tree. Um, so we just kind of toss them. Right. It's kind of in our approach and let the... Either you know, put them decompose down in the edges of things, or other animals you know find them and eat them up. All right. So you were talking about placing them on the field edges instead of in the down further in the rows, and and I was and I was having this vision of checking those fields in the winter time and of basically sinking up to your knees in mud. Uh, so tell me about. Tell me about harvesting in the in the winter time and and the I guess the the challenges you've got and the and the gear that you're using to do that. Yeah, sure. Um, so one thing that we've we've done one of the farms up here, um, uh, Pumpkin Ridge Farm, up just in outside of Portland. When I was on a tour there, they they showed me their I think it was their cabbage that they they were growing because they have a year-round CSA there, and I think they were growing dead on. I think it was dead on. And they they had, two weeks after they transplanted out their cabbage, they undersow those with crimson clover. And I was like, that's awesome. And it looked great. And so that's what I've been doing since then. And it's a great way to get some cover crop in, in between the rows, but also help with erosion control and, you know, fixing nitrogen. But, I mean, one of the biggest benefits is actually having some something green to walk on. So you're not, you know logging through the mud as much, but you have a little little something underfoot, which is a little more efficient and also helps with just the water. So that's been one thing that we've been doing in all the winter brassicas, um, is under two weeks after we transplant those out, is undersowing those. Um, and that's been, it's been, that's been awesome. Um, you know, sometimes definitely you can be a little rough on it and you'll get a little, you'll wear out some of the crimson clover, but Usually in the spring it comes back and puts up a nice little flesh of crimson clover. Um, so we've been doing that, and that seemed to help a lot. And it is definitely, um, you know, it definitely slows you down in certain areas where some areas can be a little muddier than other areas. And you just kind of, you know, just try to stay on the, I mean, you step into the bed, you're going to sink, you know, because it's a little, you know, it's a loosened up soil, so if you can stay on the path, it's a little, a little easier. But, you know, we're wearing muck boots uh, for boots, just about everybody that comes and helps harvest. We help, we'll, we'll be wearing those. And then one thing some years ago, my, my wife got, um, kind of as a joke, but as a, as a her own rain gear, was she got some insulated overalls, like some uh, like fishing waders, basically, but cut off the feet. 
And so it's like a neoprene fishing waders. Right. And they're like camouflaged, and I made fun of her because they're pretty silly looking. But I tried them on one day, and I was like, these are amazing. You don't have a little swish, swish, swish of uh, walking a rain gear, which can, you know, is slowing you down for one because you're like, you know, you have this resistance between your legs, and you're making that sound every time you walk. Um, and they're insulated and more or less waterproof, too. So you can just wear those over some long johns and be warm and dry and walk a little easier also. So those have definitely been like one of the, one of my favorites, favorite things for harvesting in the winter. Um, that and then just uh, any old rain jacket. I mean, I have like old Carhartt ones, which are great, that I've had for way too long. And some buttons don't really snap. I have like one button that kind of snaps and kind of holds it together. I probably do to get a new one. But if I just look at garage sales too of something that looks like it will, that's made of some real material that's not going to flake off. So I, you know, I love to go to garage sales, take my kids to garage sales, and if you find some rain gear, we'll kind of stock up on it and um, use kind of whatever. But definitely the, um, you know, the Carhartt and what is it, the Grundies? Grundies? What's Grundies? The? Yeah, Grund- Grundies. Grundies. Yeah, those last a long time too. I mean, the, any of those jackets, especially with the neoprene cuff are amazing. And both the Carhartts and the Grundies both have that neoprene cuff. And that's so key for when you're washing vegetables or harvesting stuff and you lift your hands up at all, not to have water completely run down your arm. It's nice to have it, you know, be a little bit restrained right there and not have the, the free flow of cold water down your arm in the winter. So, um, and then we, you know, we'll layer up a lot. I'll put, sometimes we'll have two or three layers of, you know, long underwear on and that's fine by me. I'd rather have that than get cold. You just, I mean, just really layer up. That's kind of been the biggest thing is just lots of layers. And, you know, so if you're doing something stationary, like, you know, say cleaning up the chicory, you're not really moving around too much in the field, that you're just, you know, that you're warm. Definitely, so the neoprene boots, one or two pairs of socks, up to three layers along the john, so it's really cold out. Um, lots of wool. Wool is definitely a big thing. And uh, wool pants are great because, you know, wool is, insulative even when it's wet and it's fairly you know a little bit water resistant too so I just get these like thick wool pants I mean you can even find some of my friends will use like the old army surplus wool pants that you can find um, and those are great those are just great kind of in between as long as it's not pouring you're not having to kneel too much in the mud I mean I still will even if it's muddy and wet I'll still wear those and that's just kind of nice because like an insulative layer and wool I mean, wool's just great I love wool can't get enough of it so lots of wool, and then what else? I have a wool hat also with the ear flap to flap down. I wear that a lot. I think it's like a Filson one that has the ear flaps, like the wool and ear flaps. It's pulled down. It's really cold. Other stocking hats. Um, and then we've gone to disposable, um, what are the plastic gloves, you know? Um, like Just like the, gr- the those, those thin... Um, uh, examination gloves? Yeah, kind of like that, except for like the automotive kind that are a little sturdier, so they don't like rip every time you try to do anything. Um, it's a, I ended up using some that my father-in-law had, had that he uses at his shop, and I'm like, oh, these are great. And you can get a good, lots of uses out of them. You can wear them, wear them a bit. Um, so we'll wear those, and then a lot of times if it's really cold or we're doing something colder, then we can put neoprene over that, neoprene gloves over that sometimes. Or sometimes there's... Um, Oh man, I can't think of the brand right now. But basically, it's completely plastic, 
plastic gloves, just kind of like your regular garden gloves, but they're all plastic all the way around, so they're not breathable on top, like the cotton on top. Um, there's some that are like that. There's some that will go up to your elbows. So there's lots of different kind of options. But um, when it's really cold, the neoprene with the plastic underneath are huge. Just having that plastic underneath, that plastic auto glove or examination glove, having that underneath any glove is great because you're keeping the physical wet off your hand. Right. And just that in itself is amazing. Keeping your hands, you know, just from being dry at least. And even that, you know, those gloves also don't really breathe, so you're kind of trapping some heat in there, even though it's a really thin membrane. That's been a, you know, those have been, have worked really well the last couple of years. At the beginning of the show, you indicated that you are mostly working by yourself. You got one part-time helper for part of the year? Yeah, um, yes. Usually we have somebody that comes out and works two days a week, probably from May until September. And then October is usually off. And then this last year we hired, we had, how many days? I probably had three days hired out during the winter for harvest. And then we have some people that do work trades um, in the wintertime also. We'll have on a Monday, we'll have, have, like a Monday of a harvest week, I'll have two paid people and four work trade people. They work for their vegetables, basically. They work for their share. And I've been super lucky to have people who have used to manage farms, have their own farm, or worked on farms. We live in, in Portland but and do other work now, but still want a farm. So I have people that are skilled and experienced and kind of, and know what's up and how you know how things work, and also don't mind, you know, bundling up and, and working. And so we've been really, really pretty lucky to have the um, the people that either work or do the work trade on the farm to, to help with things. And so, with a with a fairly minimal, or or in the case of people doing work trades, you know, maybe a somewhat inexperienced workforce. What kinds of equipment do you guys use to to support you doing so much of your work alone? Um, well, we have a, we have a G, so we have the Alzheimer's G for, you know, a lot of cultivation. Um, so we'll use that as, you know, with pine weeders and sweeps, um, we have some hilling discs for the, for the leeks, you know, try to hill our, dig trenches and then plant our leeks and then hill our leeks, try to get nice, light, nice long shanks that way. Um, we have automatic irrigation in our greenhouses. You know, we still walk through and check, but everything's on timers. And we adjust kind of accordingly to what the weather's going to be like that week or within a couple days. So if I go away for the weekend, things are still getting watered and I can I can leave. And sometimes I'll do a little overwatering on the weekends just to ensure that things don't dry out. Um, so that's been really helpful, having the automatic irrigation. Um, what we recently motorized a root washer that we had. Josh Volk and I were hanging out and like, Josh, can you help me build a root washer? I was like, sure. So we got some old bicycle rims and parts and he built a prototype just with some cedar fencing and some bicycle rims and some casters and we put all that put all that together and then I motorized that this last year and that's been huge to actually have a root washer. You know, you can set it and forget it to some extent. And then, you know, go around, wash some bins, do some other stuff, waste some stuff, write some notes down on the whiteboard and 
and get back to it and unload it and do the next batch of whatever roots. So that's definitely been a huge time saver in the winter. We have a couple garden carts, but we're on a hill. We've talked about, I don't know if this will ever happen, is getting basically getting like an electric assist like they have for bicycles these days for a garden cart. Maybe using like a wheelchair motor or something that's you know versatile that can be outdoor in the elements or kind of one of our next ideas to try to uh, try to make. We also talked about putting up a winch at the top of the hill to pull carts up. It's you know it's a good good workout walking up the hill with a cart loaded down with muddy roots. Yes, you know? <laughs> it's, a, <laughs> it's huffing and puffing at the top no matter what. You know you can never really you don't do it enough to. I mean you do it often enough, but. It's still a lot of work, so we usually have a... That's probably one of our next things that we're going to try to... Who knows what will happen this year or next, but something like that would be pretty great. Um, I don't know. What else? Um, you know, I have a back... I have, we have a backpack there for a lot of foliar feeding we do in the in the summer, um, every week or two. I also have a big tank that gets on... A, I have a second uh, G that I can used for parts and actually has a foliar tank or a tank on there that the previous used for foliar spraying and I just need to change that over. I feel like that'd be a nice a nice thing that would save a lot of time in the summertime. But I haven't haven't got that up and going. Um, and then we also for irrigation we we use these uh, wind fighter sprinkler heads on these little bases, like sprinkler bases, garden sprinkler bases. Little sleds I guess. I guess is what you could call them, and those can we'll drag those across from one field to the next. So we kind of have three fields in a row. So say we have a, you know, our beds are about 175 feet, I guess. So we can drag that from one field across to the next and kind of water the next one fairly easily. So it's a pretty easy way instead of moving hand lines. Um, and having to disconnect everything, you kind of leave these like three-quarter inch poly in between each sled with probably like an 18-inch riser and then a wind fighter, Nelson wind fighter sprinkler head on top. And we'll, um, we'll drag those, or I can, you know, one person can drag those easily from one field to the next. Um, and they're pretty lightweight and you know, I don't break them too much. Sometimes the sprinkler bases can, can break a little bit. They're not perfect, but... Um, it's made it definitely fairly easy for one person to move irrigation around and and not, uh, yeah, you know, I've moved lots of hand lines and that's fun. And it can be an Olympic sport of its own, jumping over beds with hand lines. <laughs> yes, very it's much so. Uh, you know, it's, it's been pretty easy, especially in our scale with just these, with the three acres having to, to move those lines that way. With the large amount of root crops that you're growing for your farm, are you doing anything special for tillage for those? Um, we use a, um, a chisel plow in the spring. And we'll usually do kind of rip, rip down the hill. We would put, depending on when I get in and what the soil's like, it's either two or three shanks between two and four feet apart behind the, it's about, we have about a 50 horsepower tractor, that international that we have. And we'll rip down the hill to try to increase some drainage that way. And sometimes we'll go across ways and kind of make like a checkerboard. Um, just kind of, you know, ripping that way down the field. But um, that's about it, you know. And that's just kind of for the, all the plants just to kind of promote some better drainage and water flow, you know, for the whole farm. 
And then in addition to the chisel plow, what are you following that with? Are you just using a rototiller for your secondary tillage? Secondary tillage is a disc. Um, and we didn't, you know, right when we started, we just had, all we had was a, I think we just had like a mower. And a, the first year we just had a mower and a tiller, and that was about it. And then um, chisel plow, and we had the till, chisel plow, the mower, and the tiller. And then by two or three years back, we finally got the disc. Um, and that is, I love the disc. You can drive a lot faster. You know, it's, it's aggressive but not too aggressive. Um, so we usually do a couple passes with the disc, or you know, depending on what we need to do next or where we're at time-wise, if we're in a time crunch or whatever, we can do one pass and let that sit a little while and then get back to it in a few weeks, um, or do a couple passes to really break it up, and then um, the next week or two follow that with the tiller for kind of following final bedding up, and we have... On the back of our tiller, I've um, welded three spots where I have rebar that I can, depending on, that can basically um, mark rows. So as we're tilling, we have this rebar that's basically welded to the back of the tiller that marks three rows, and you can take the rebar in or out if you just want to have one row or two rows or three rows according. And that's been a really nice, um, a really nice way just to. Uh, not have to mark beds, but have straight lines, especially for following it with a G, to have that spacing consistent. Um, that's been great. And then we just eyeball when we're transplanting, um, which isn't perfect all the time, but it saves time. And, you know, usually I err on a little more room than less room for the crops, and I feel like it, it evens out. But that's definitely one one area we might we might change at some point. But, um, but definitely having the... Um, Marking the rows as we till has been a huge uh, time saver for, uh, and worked with all our systems too, with the G and everything. What are you using for a seeder for getting in crops like the carrots and the beets? Oh, right now I still have the Earthway. And last year I was going to buy the Jang. I, actually, I saw you talk at the Small Farms Conference in, in Oregon, not this last spring, but the spring before, and I was like, I should buy the Jang. I just need to buy a Jang and just get good, consistent you know, spacing between turnips and rutabagas and other things and I have gaps and things and so maybe maybe today maybe after I talk to you I'll go by the day <laughs> so that's um, I've been telling you know, the last few years I've talked myself into it and then all of a sudden it's time to plant you know to direct seed things and I was like oh I forgot I just got to get stuff in and I don't buy them and I just work with what I have so I what I've done and it's worked you know and it's worked reasonably well is I've um, I've put electrical tape on the plates of the earthway and I've kind of figured out ways to kind of to make the earthway work and just kind of modifying the plates. Um, I remember when I talked to the guy at Sudden Egg and they sell you know, lots of cedars there. But he said that they sell plates, you know, that are actually custom, but that he said you can just basically super glue the holes. Once you find your right seeding rate, you can super glue the, the, the holes on the earthway to kind of make custom seed plates for the earthway. Right. Um, and I never got around to it, so I just use electrical tape, and it works works good enough um, to kind of cover up the holes. Um, yeah, so we'll use that, and you know, like the parsnip is definitely like my hardest one because I think I use the probably just use the carrot plate. I think I do three passes on each, three to four passes on each row, depending on the size of the parsnip seed. And I get a pretty good stand, but it could be a little more. Definitely, that's like the biggest one that I feel like. Could really use some precision. So I'd like to get the jang, get the some pelletized parsnip seed, and just not fuss around with it as much, you know. Parsnip's hard no matter what you do. 
and everything about it's a little bit finicky. Are you doing any flame weeding? Um, I have in the past, and then the last few years I haven't. Um, yeah, I used to with the beets and carrots. So I guess what I was, yeah, what I was saying I guess earlier is the weed pressure that we have isn't that intense in the middle of, uh, of July when we're doing those seedings. Um, so I could probably do it, but I don't. Um, usually we end up we end up doing you know one good you know one hoeing of uh, we like once they're up, once the carrots are up, we'll hoe about one time, and then they'll be large enough. And the next time we'll I'll use the G, and then use the G probably one more time, and then mate. mate. But usually I don't I don't ever really need to do any hand weeding with the carrots or the beets. Because I think it's like the timing that we're planting things. Everything's really wanting to grow, the carrots. Right. And basically, just that one hoeing um, works really well um, to get, you know, get things the first round of weeds. And then, um, then the G can do the next couple times. And then, uh, then they're pretty much good to go. For doing the winter harvest, are you succession cropping? I mean, do you put in multiple crops of carrots? Or is it just one that comes, matures at the right time in the fall and then just holds over the winter it's just one yeah we've just done one this year we might do two so we can um, harvest some a little bit earlier um, and then store those in the, in the walk-in is what we were thinking um, but usually it's right around mid-july is when we're planting most of our carrots um, for harvest in the fall so we do yes yeah, so we have lots of i do a little succession with some of the um some of like the braising greens and sometimes with parsnips I'll do it just to like do some trial dates, just have a couple different sizes, you know. I can harvest some stuff a little bit more in the fall and then some stuff will still be will you know, will grow a little bit more in the late winter, I guess. Or size that would just won't be quite as large. So but most everything's kind of a one time date like that, so it's like a one one time shot. So yeah, all those brassicas, you know, it was about mid July. We're transplanting all those. We've gone to uh, direct seeding all our chicories is one thing we've done also where we're direct seeding chicories and I felt like we get a pretty good stand that way and um, they seem like they're a lot less transplanting um, and that that number I still need to look at a little bit but I feel like the direct seeded chicories also just do I imagine they're you know they just have a better they're really settled in a little bit more than transplanting those guys out have you found that it makes a difference for overwintering them? You know, I haven't because I haven't done like a side-by-side necessarily. I know Josh has talked about that in the past, but he thought it might. I haven't. Um, one of our one of the farmers around here, um, Anthony Batard of Ayers Creek Farm, he does. that's how he does all his chicories. Is usually that first week of July, he'll, um, he is, I was talking or emailing with him or talking with him, but he uh, direct seeds all his chicories that first, the first week of July, right around the first week of July. Um, and so that's right, that's usually where I shoot, sometimes around there, sometimes a little bit earlier. And that usually seems to work work pretty well. And it's, you know, it's also one really nice thing about, about you know, seeding things, direct seeding things in June and July. Is out here, the weather's, I mean, the weather's usually not too hot, it's not too cold, things want to germinate, and you're not... Um, you know, you're not fighting the weeds necessarily and all the all those small things that are germinating a little more slowly. So tell me a little bit about your work schedule. 
if I understood right, you said that you're pretty much doing four days a week, eight hours a day? Yep. That's about right. Sometimes even, even less because I'll take my daughter to school a couple days a week. So I won't start sometimes in the, during the school year, at least until about 8.45 or 9. Um, Wednesdays, I always take my daughter to school, so I won't really start till 9. And then, yeah, then work. Um, usually have like a half hour, 45-minute lunch. Sometimes, if it's just me working, sometimes I'll kind of do office work and eat at the same time. But if somebody else is working here, then we'll sit down for a you know, half hour, 45 minutes. Um, yeah, then cut out around 4 o'clock and start making dinner and hang with the family. And that's kind of, that's the rough of it. That's pretty laid back for a vegetable farmer. <laughs> it's true. It's totally true. It's true. Um, it's good. I mean, I think, um, you know, there's not the same pressure to harvest stuff early in the morning as there would be if you were harvesting. Um, you know, and some days, some days, you know, I'll work later or some nights I'll end up disking or, you know, something like that depending on what's happening, you know. Um, but it is. It definitely is a little more laid back, and it's definitely not working crazy hours all the time and not working until you burn yourself out. Or um, Yeah, I feel like we've definitely, like, figured out a thing that really works well for, for our family. It's always been, like, a number one, especially since we've had kids. Uh, just a big priority is to not work too much, to make sure that we have enough, enough time to enjoy each other and be around and, you know, because sometimes my wife will still end up working late, and so I'll be, you know, I'll have to get dinner going and get everything going. So I'll be in charge of things on that side. So. That's awesome. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks. It's, it's, you know, I feel like we have a good, a good rhythm going right now. All right. With that, we're going to stop here, get a word from one more sponsor, and then when we come back, we'll do our lightning round. Sounds good. This lightning round and... Perennial support for pretty much every lightning round we've ever done is brought to you by Vermont Compost Company, makers of Fort V and Fort Light potting mixes. When you're growing transplants, all of the investments that you've made in plant materials, heat, labor, and overhead depend utterly on the performance of the media where you expect your plants to grow. And if you're an organic grower, you're probably using a media based on compost, and you should be looking for the best compost. Most organic potting soils have two basic parts. It's the compost and then everything else. At Vermont Compost Company, Carl Hammer and his crew are very intentional about the inputs they use in their compost. While they're making use of waste products, waste disposal is not their primary goal. Ingredients are sourced consciously and with the end in mind. The same goes for the everything else part of the potting soil. Like the best in art, everything in Vermont compost potting soils has a purpose. Whether it's the chips of ocean blue granite or the kelp that provides micronutrients, not to mention a little smell of the ocean. Fully composted compost top quality ingredients, and a real sense for the art and the science of plant production combine with a real commitment to organic growing professionals to create a consistent product year after year. And in something that's a subject to as many variables as market farming, it's nice to have something you can count on. VermontCompost.com Danny, what's your favorite tool on the farm? Oh, you know, the, the tractor might be one of my favorites. Um, and the root washer, I'd probably say. Uh, the you know, when I was working with Josh at Slowhand Farm, we were digging all our beds by hand. And I was like, well, when, when I move out, I'm going to get a tractor. And sure is nice. Filling everything with the tractor. You're using the tractor. Saves a lot of time. 
And then the, uh, the root washer has been a huge time saver. I mean, just, you know, the ability to put the roots in there. And in the wintertime, you know, we're not dealing with tops or anything like, you know, you know we just, in the fall, I guess we have some carrot tops that we'll keep on. But, I mean, the rest of the winter, the tops usually, the quality is not good enough to leave on for a lot of the roots. So being able to throw those in there and let them spin around for a while and do some other things, I mean, it just saves so much, so much time and does a good job. And, it, you know, um, that's been a huge one. What were you doing before you were using a root washer? Spraying them down, you know, flipping them around, just spraying them by hand, and roughing them up, you know, you know, just as you've probably done, just on a table, spraying them on our, you know, we have a, a table I made just with a with a lath top, and um, yeah, just spraying them and putting them in bins. It's hardcore. Yes, it's definitely in the winter. It's also, you know. It's wet and cold, and you're standing around spraying carrots, and it's not that fun. <laughs> there are things other people would rather be doing other things than that. So, and then, you know, something that we didn't talk about earlier that I just want to touch on is is you mentioned a couple times working for Josh at Slowhand Farm, but you've also spent some time working on other farms before you finally started your own in 2010, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Could you just tell us a little bit about that? Um. Well, yeah, um, back in 2000, I worked at a farm in Wisconsin. Um, a friend was out there working on a farm. He he was willing to split his stipend with me. I think he was getting either 100 bucks or 200 bucks a month in room and board. And so I got half of that. And we, we worked, like, you know, from dusk till dawn and had a great time. And I was kind of, you know, we milked goats and sold the farmer's markets and had a CS, ran, helped run a CSA out there. And then I worked in Portland for a few months to be closer to my family and moved back here and worked on a couple different CSA farms, the Savannah Organics and the 47th Avenue Farm, and definitely honed some skills there. Um, and that was, that was fantastic. Did that for a few years. Then I took a little break because I wanted to learn how to do um, some carpentry work or just building work. So I started working for doing some, uh, some residential remodeling, started learning how to build things. Um, and while we were doing that, I had a little little half acre with a friend who ran some land and grew some garlic and sold some farmer's markets just to kind of keep our hands in the soil and the earth. So we did that for a little bit. Um, then I helped some friends build the, some houses and, um, you know, eventually just kind of decided I wanted to get back into, this is really where my heart was, was back growing vegetables, and I learned some skills that I needed to, needed to learn, and we came back, yeah, we were able to come out here to Michelle's land, which isn't like the best soil in the world, but it's, we've been making it work, and plants have been growing, and people seem to like the, the vegetables we grow, so yeah, it's been, it's been working out. Awesome. What's your favorite crop to grow? I love chicories, because they're, you know, they're just so... They're beautiful, first off, and then they have like the sweet and bitter, and then once the winter comes around, it kind of helps sweeten them up. So I think it's a really, it's a really special crop that I don't think gets enough attention as it deserves. And I mean, one great thing about it too is you know you can't grow lettuce outdoors in the in the winter time, and even in you know hoops and things, it still takes a lot, a lot of effort. But chicories are a really nice green to eat in the winter time, but also has a whole another 
nutrient value than brassicas, you know, so it's nice to switch it up from just a brassica-heavy diet also, so it's nice to really have the chicories to kind of uh, shape your diet that way too. Is there a particular chicory that would stand out? I mean, if you, if, if you were going to a desert island and could only take one chicory <laughs> with you, which one would it be? I love the sugar loaf and I love the Casafrancos. Those are probably my two, two favorites. And it's a pretty close tie. They're both on the milder side. Um, you know, the sugar loaf, it's like a romaine almost, you know, in its own way. It's like really crunchy and crispy, and it's one of the sweeter chicories out there. So it's really, you can do a lot with that. And the Costa Franco is just beautiful and a pretty thin-leafed chicory, and, um, you know, it's speckled, kind of green and red. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's a beauty, so it's, uh, and it's really delicious, too. Danny, what's your farmer superpower? Superpower. Oh, I guess just rolling with everything. It's going to be crazy weather. I guess it's the ability to uh, not get too down, not get too up, not get too down. Just kind of roll with uh, with what comes. I don't know if that's a superpower. We'll take it. You know. Okay. <laughs> Rolling with the punches sounds like a superpower Rolling to me. Rolling with the punches. There you go. Rolling with the punches. And finally, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? I'd work with what you have, you know, don't uh, just work with what's around you and don't be afraid to ask for help. There's tons of people that know so much more stuff than, than you do, so don't be afraid to ask questions and ask for help. And, um, and I guess the other thing would be not to take everything too seriously. You know, like one thing, when I was, before I started farming, you know, there was, um, I did a lot more backpacking and I did a lot more summer play, I guess, or had a lot more flexi- more flexibility in the summer, right? That's like the blessing and the curse of farming, is you get to work outside every day, and you get to, you know, be outside, and it's amazing, and work with the soil and work with the plants, but you um, don't necessarily have the same flexibility of, say, taking off to backpack for a weekend or, uh, you know, jump outside of things for a little bit. So I'd say to, to make sure you, you keep doing some of those things um, in the summertime that sometimes farming with, when you're doing farm work, it's hard to, uh, hard to keep going. Awesome. Danny, thank you so much for being my guest today on the farmer to farmer podcast. Oh, it's really been a pleasure. Chris. Thanks for having me on. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'm going to say again, this is episode 122 of the farmer to farmer podcast, and that you can find the notes for this show at farmer to farmer podcast.com. By looking on the episodes page or just searching for Persich, that's P-E-R-C-I-C-H. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America, and by Rock Dust Local, the first company in North America specializing in local sourcing and delivery of the best rock dust and biochar for organic farming. Additional funding for transcripts for this episode were provide, was provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. If you like the show, please head on over to iTunes, leave us a review, or you can do that in Stitcher or wherever else you can leave reviews for the show. You can also talk to us in the show notes, or you can tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. 
And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource that you value. You can support the show by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. I'm working to make the best farming podcast in the world and you can help. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com and I'll do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.